Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ranry here. As always, today's guest is racing legend Kyle Petty. And but first, let me ask you for a favor: share this podcast with someone who might enjoy it. Okay, Kyle Petty. If you're a NASCAR fan, you know exactly who I am. He comes from the great Petty lineage. However, he also has a book out: Swerve or Die, Life at Life at My Speed, and the first family of NASCAR racing. Uh, really super guy to talk to. Had a blast. Hope you enjoy this episode with Kyle Petty. Kyle, welcome to the War Room. How are you doing? Doing great, man. How about you? Man, it is, you know, it was great down here in Texas uh, for the past month, and now it's, <laughs> it's warmed up. I think it's a cool back off again finally, but we had a hot, hot summer, and we were we were ready for a break. We finally got it, and it got back up in the 90s, so... Hopefully, not, I, I was just in Texas for two days and it was 94 yeah. and 96. And then it said it was supposed to be 88 the day I left. And I was yeah. like, oh my gosh, man. So it was, uh, I feel for you. I feel what for part, you. What part of Texas? Uh, it's Fort Worth. Yeah, I'm about, about 45 minutes up from where I am right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just, uh, just south of Fort Worth. Yep. So yeah, we had the same, same weather. Okay. Well, let's get into it. As I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you got a book out and the listeners can't see this, but behind you, I can see a copy of the book. So what made you decide to write a book? You know what? Uh, a lot of things, a lot of things and timing. Um, I, I think that's it. Um, I tell people all the time I was born in June of 1960, went to my first race in July of 1960. Uh, and I've been going back to racetracks all across the country ever since following my dad and my granddad. And then I raced and then, uh, my son came along, Adam came along and raced and, um, I just grew up with in different eras. I grew up with with Richard Petty and David Pearson and Kel Yarbrough and Bobby and Donnie Allison and Bobby Isaac. Those guys of that era, uh, what I consider the golden era. Uh, and then along comes Earnhardt and Terry Labonte uh, and and Rusty Wallace and Bill Elliott and guys like that. And then along comes Jeff Gordon and and Bobby Labonte uh, and, the, and the Burton brothers and guys like that. And along comes Tony Stewart and Jimmy Johnson and guys like that. And I was fortunate and able to race with all of them. Uh, so I got a lot of stories, had a lot of stories. Uh, and then the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, my wife, Morgan, was pregnant. We were pregnant with our second child. And no one really knew how COVID uh, was going to affect pregnancy. So we just locked up. Uh, and being locked up for you know, 12, 18 months, really, during that period of time, uh, before and after he was born, um, just had a lot of time. And I decided I would sit down and, and try to write something. Uh, and, and the book Swerve or Die is what came out of that, that experiment. And I will say it was definitely just an experiment because I've never done anything like it. Had you collected, uh, a, did you have like a diary before or, uh, you, or is this all like in the brain? You had to get it out. Yeah, listen, this is all on that, that magical spinning device in my head that you just got to stick your finger in and stop sometimes and say, okay, let, let's talk about that or stop. Let's talk about that. You know, I, listen, I do TV. I never know what's going to come out of my mouth. Uh, so to write it down, <laughs> to write it down uh, was I I'd tried at different times in my life to just sit and try to journal or try to try to have something, but no, you know, it was really um, I, I did sit down and, and try to make a, a list of, of things that, that had happened and things that were impactful and things that were funny um, and things I remembered from the time I was, was growing up to now. Um, and then I would get into one and I would say, Oh man, this is a better story. And then I would go to that. Oh man, this is a better one. And I would, I would keep moving. And the next thing, you know, there's more on the floor that I've cut out of this book than what I put into the book. Yeah. So uh, that, that was it's, and listen, people ask this all the time and I want to be real clear about this. Uh, people will say, you know, I read your book. Did you talk to X and, and, and have them refresh your memory? No, it's my yeah. memory. It's yeah. my memory. It's my book. It's my memory. You know what I mean? I get to put it down the way I remember. I'm not saying that it's totally factual, but it's how I remember it. It's how I was told and it's how I remember it. So that's, I, I think that's what things are about. If you start correcting everything and trying to fix everything, man, I'd be here for, for years and years and years. And I'm not, I'm not that kind of guy. Well, and, and that's important. Uh, we do history on this podcast from time to time. And, and I always ask, you know, the perspective of the author doing the history, because 
you know, if you read someone's memoir, you have to keep in mind that it is their perspective and it might right. not be influenced by any outside perspective. And so it doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that it's right. It means that you just got to keep in mind that a different account might see the situation differently. And so that, that's good to let people know because it's, it's a good reminder that it is a, it's a memoir. It's not, it's not, you're, right. try, you're trying to get the actual history of exactly what happened. It's what you remember happened. And so, so, yeah. So here's my example. Here's my example. So I drove a race car for 30 years. I was in, I can't even begin to tell you how many wrecks, accidents, things happened on the racetrack that were multiple people involved, multiple people, 10 car wreck, 12 car wreck, four car wreck. You could interview every one of them. And there were 20 different perspectives, four different perspectives. Too. So I learned a long time ago, just because I said you ran over me and wrecked me, you don't see it that way. You don't, <laughs> you don't see it that way. And when you say I ran over you, I didn't see it that way. So I'm, I learned early on, there were different perspectives. Okay. So you mentioned a minute ago that you're during COVID and you're pregnant with a child. What's it like going back into the memory bank? Oh, you're reflecting on this while you're waiting a child to be born. You know what? It's it is. So some of it was some of it was a lot of fun. Um, some of it was was easy, lighthearted um, and and really easy to, to, to think about. And it just kind of flowed. Um, and then as as the book starts with with the news that my my oldest son, Adam, had been killed in a racing and a practice accident in New Hampshire. And, and, you know, that, that's, that was 2000. Now that, that happened in 2000. So to be sitting there um, into in 2020 and thinking about it, um, knowing that my wife was pregnant and we were expecting um, was, was, it was difficult. And then to have to go inside of yourself and walk down that hallway when you're, you're, you're looking out on the joy that's that's coming, but you have to go back down that hallway and open that door somewhere in your soul and, and get out that box that says Adam on it. And you have to re-examine that. Um, that was that was incredibly painful and incredibly difficult. Um, I thought I had dealt with a lot of it 20 years ago, um, but I hadn't. But I hadn't. I re- and I realized I hadn't during this time. And I think, you know, cotton being born um, helped heal a lot of that. It, it was the, the, the position of, of, you know, the darkness and the light. Um, and, and I think that, that helped me come through it. Morgan helped me come through it. Um, there were days that you couldn't even talk about it, that I couldn't talk about the book. I couldn't talk about any of it. There's days that we would write. And then there was days that you just leave it laying on a table and not, not even talk about it period and didn't want to go back down that road. So I, I think it was, there were some hard moments reading it. And you do this, you do this podcast. So, you know, as you sit and speak, mm. speaking is different than reading. And, and to do the audio book, when I had to do the audio book, man, it was incredibly painful. Um, but that was the hardest part was, was revisiting the, the sadness and the dark moments. What do you hope that Cotton takes from this book when he becomes old enough to read? I hope they know they had a, a big brother that was, a, a, that was an incredible young man. Um, and that, that he inspired a lot of people with, with a, in a lot of different ways. Um, at the same time, I, I hope that my children now, uh, my oldest is Overton, he's four, Cotton is now two, uh, and I have a new little boy, Devant, uh, and he is coming three months. He'll be three months old. So, you know, I hope for them, they're never going to know a time when I drove a race car. They're never going to know a time when their dad was anything other than just their dad, that guy that takes me to preschool, that guy that picks me up at school, whatever that may be. Um, that's all they're going to know about me. The guy that runs his mouth on TV that really doesn't have a job uh, it, that doesn't work for a living. That's how they're going to know me. So I hope as they take this book and, and look forward that they see that there was, you know, that, that there were some good times and there were some bad times and um, you know, you come through it and you just keep going, but I hope that they know that their family goes way back. For your younger three, um, is racing a trajectory that you want them to pursue, or are you ready to <laughs> let that part of the lineage move on? You know, I don't care. Um, it, whatever we were raised, um, we were raised to do, and 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 to do what you love, and and find something you love, and I don't care what it is. Um, I you know I, I don't care if you. 
I wanted to be a school teacher, my sister was a school teacher. She loved being a school teacher. She was for 32, 34 years um, to do, to find whatever you want. We were never pushed to go race. I was never pushed to go race. Um, it was do what you want to do. And I think that's the same way um, with these three little boys to do what they want to do. If they, if they so choose and that's the, the direction they want to go, I will do everything I can just like any parent does uh, to try to give them an opportunity and, and make them that way. Um, if I'm going to say my, my, what I would wish, I would wish they would pick up those golf clubs. I'll lay in the middle of the floor every day, uh, try, as a hint to go, to go do that. So that, that would probably be better, you know, something like that, something a little bit safer, maybe. Let's go back to 1960. Um, you said you're born in June in the yep. racetrack lab. What is it about the family environment of NASCAR? Because there's a lot of generational families, a lot of people who work, maybe not drive, but they, the next generation works in the pit or whatever. Why is NASCAR unique in that way? So th this is a funny, this is a, that, that's a great question. And, and I've thought about it a lot. Um, I, I really have. But I go back to the beginning. And, and I go back to the beginning to a couple of different things. Um, you know, I think a lot of people think that this sport was born solely on the back of illegal alcohol, on bootlegging and, and running from the law and, and, you know, throwing your stake in the ground, um, putting nailing a stake in the ground. And, and that is true. That is true. Um, you know, Southern people were that way. They didn't want to be told how to do things. They wanted to do things their way. Um, so that is, that is partially true. The other part of the story that's just as important is in the South, we didn't have Major League Baseball, uh, Major League Football. You didn't have that. Um, and what we did have was a lot of incredible young men that went off to fight in World War II. Uh, and they came home and they had seen such, such devastation, so much carnage and atrocities in Europe and had been on the front lines. You couldn't put them back on a tobacco farm in North Carolina. They wouldn't, they, they didn't fit in anymore. They, they, they had seen too much. Their world had expanded from rural North Carolina or rural Georgia or rural Alabama. It was a, it was a bigger world and they understood it was a bigger world. And no matter what it was, they had to get that frustration out. They had to, to get that energy out. Uh, so a lot of these guys just, you know, cut a circle in a, in a cow pasture and started beating and banging on each other with cars and, you know, souping them up and um, jalopy racing and, and it evolved into NASCAR. So as you look at that, those early years were a lot of, lot of farm boys, a lot, a lot of guys from rural America, rural South, especially, who were just looking for something, just looking for something to hang their hat on that little bit of excitement, that little bit of adrenaline rush, whatever it may be. Um, and, and that was family. That was family. You know, we're going to race over at the Thompson place and the two Thompson boys are going to race. And you know, that that's the way it was, you know, and, and that's kind of the way. So as it evolved, you had families get into it who were farm families, mo mostly who were loggers, um, who were in, in, in all different kinds of, of, of blue collar businesses and worked for other people in meals. David Pearson's dad worked in a meal. David worked in a meal. They just came out of that environment and they wanted something better. They wanted something better in life. But um, family was the center of their universe. Sundays at, at, at Sundays after church, sitting down to that Sunday meal of fried chicken and biscuits. That was that was the center of the universe. So I think that's how it started. And that's how it evolved. My granddad started in, in, in 49 my dad started in 58. I started in 79. Adam came along in 98. You know, we talk about the Pearsons and their sons raced, the Allisons and all their sons raced. It is a, and I, I tell people this all the time, it is a family farm. It is any family rural business. Um, it gets passed on from generation to generation to generation. It's a life. It's a lifestyle. It's not a sport to us. It is what we do. It is what we live. Uh, just like the family farm. And, you know, we talk about wrecks and accidents and things like that. The crop's always not the best. You know, the price of tobacco goes down and it goes up and, and the price of beef goes down and milk goes down and up. But it doesn't mean you stop farming. 
you keep farming because that's what you do. And that's what we did. So I think that's why so many, so many people embrace the sport. Um, and, and I think that's a big part of, of what the sport was and why, what the sport continues to be is family. Yeah, there was a brief period um, in my life where I got to work with uh, my dad and my grandfather. And my grandfather had actually retired. And he came out of retirement and he was in his eighties. And so he came out of retirement he's an engineer land surveyor. And it was funny because he would call me and ask me questions about stuff that, you know, obviously, you know, he could do the, I need the computer. He could do the, the calculations in his head. And but it was kind of a, a cool deal because here is someone who grew up, he, he was a World War II veteran and grew up in a different era and lived through things that I never experienced. And here he was getting to work with me and, there is something magical about those multi-generations. I mean, father, son's one thing, but can I get two, we get three generations or even four, if you're really lucky, that's, that's magical. And it's hard to capture that. And for people to really understand it, unless you've experienced it. Yeah. It's listen, it's rare air. It, it is rare air. And when you do get to experience it, um, it, it, it is special because you can have three generations sitting talking about the same thing. And they're, and they're talking three different languages and coming at it from three different yeah. directions. And every one of them is learning something uh, and seeing it in a different light. Um, so that's the positive side. The negative side is, you know, when you get in that little bit of disagreement, that comes home. That comes home to dinner. That comes home to Sunday lunch, man. And that is the tough part about working in a family business. But if you can survive that part, man, the upside is so much, so much. There's so much gratification um, because you feel like you did something as a family, you feel like you did something as a group and it takes that individual piece out of it. You know, I think we're all proud of I, I, my two greatest moments in racing. And I've said it a thousand times was helping my dad win Daytona in 79 and helping my son win, uh, at Charlotte in 98. Um, and that's family to me. That's family. That, that was a lot more important than anything I ever did. Okay. So a minute ago, you mentioned the golden era of racing. Um, why is it the golden era in your opinion? What's distinct about it? Because the technology obviously isn't as great. Cars aren't as great, but air quotes around that from a modern perspective. So why is that the golden era? So I think, I think in any sport you look at, um, you know, we can look at, I, listen, I can look at, I, and I think, let me preface this by saying this, the golden era for a 22 year old, is going to be different than my golden era. You know, I, I, think, I think this is just my personal golden era when I, when I speak of it. Um, and, and I think I look at it because uh, in a lot of ways, you know, you had the, the Petties and the Pearsons and the Allisons and the Yarbroughs. And when you look at the all-time win list, sorry, those are the guys that are still at the top of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? After all these years of running this sport, 75 years, you know, those are the guys that are, that are still there. Um, those are the guys that, that when I came, I watched them race. I, I obviously, uh, and grew up watching my dad and he was my hero, but those guys had to beat my hero to win races. And when they did, they became my hero because I knew they were just as good as, as, as my dad was. Um, they helped raise me in, in a lot of different ways. And then I was fortunate and I got to race with them and I, I will never forget, man, never forget. Um, I'm 18 years old and they're all in their early forties. And I'm thinking, man, I'll beat these old men. I'm, I got it going on, dude. Uh, I'm, I'm invincible. I can run that first race and they run circles around me, man. And I, I remember looking at them when that race was over with, with a different, different respect, with a different awe. Um, just, they amazed me. Um, and, and I go back to that generation too, is that, you know, I, so many, I, I watch these guys and, and watch the athletes today and, they are the most physically fit specimens, uh, whether it's basketball, football, baseball, I, I, don't, I don't care. You know, I, I look at these Olympic athletes, but these guys and that the people that played other sports during those eras, they were, they were tough here between their ears. You know, they just didn't let people beat them. They didn't think about people beating them. They, they were the greatest of all time in their head. And, you know, they drive a race car and, no power steering, 200 miles an hour, 140 degrees inside of it, blisters on their hands, and this wave at you when they passed you just to make you mad. You know what I mean? And that, that was the point. Right. It, wasn't, it wasn't 
So it, it's it's just for me, the winds, the places, the stars, what they were then were, was just totally different than what it is now. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, when I think of uh, NASCAR, it almost feels, and, and I'm not a I'm not a huge NASCAR fan, so this is an outside perspective. But it almost feels like you kind of have the older generation, um, and I can't divide the eras up like you can, but the older generation, yeah. which is more rough and tough, and it's kind of it's more, I'm from Louisiana. I live in Texas now. It's more, it's more of a Southern feel to it. It's more rugged. You oh, might yeah. see a fellow with a pinch of snuff in his mouth, you know, like yeah. that's the feel. Whereas no. the modern era feels just more modern. It's more about getting the bumper a little lower, you know, yeah. all the aerodynamics. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with either side. It just, no. it just has it's a just different, different. it's a different feel. Yeah. It's, it's just different. You know, the, 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 the older generation, you know, they ran, they raced, um, they beat each other's heads in on the racetrack. And when the race was over with, they'd gather around in a little place and, you know, have a cold beer and smoke a cigarette or a cigar and stand around and relive the race in their head. These guys get out um, and, and, you know, and they jump in their motor homes and they take a shower and they jump in their G4s and they fly off to, to LA or to New York or wherever they may live. And it's just totally different. You know, that the guy that before, um, that, that old generation, they, they jumped in a car, uh, and drove back home. They, they run a 500 mile race at Michigan and then drove 13 hours to get back to the shop so they could work on it again and go to the next race. But it's, it's just, and it's just different. It doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it wrong. Doesn't make it less of a sport or more of a, it doesn't change any of that. It's It's just different. That's right. So you brought this up. This is a question I've had, I don't know, for, I'm going to say the good part of 20 years now, (laughs) I've been on the interstate going 75, 80. I'm not a fast driver, but you know, 75, 80. And then you get off and you have to go like 35 and it feels like you're walking. Okay. Yeah. What is it like after hours of going at <laughs> crazy speeds that I've never even come close to getting off and having to drive like a normal human? You know what? It, and, and I'm not going to lie. There, there have been times when it is, it is like, Oh my gosh, man, what is happening here? You know what I mean? And, and you almost get that. There were times you almost had that little bit of rage where it's like, man, let's go, let's go, you know, but here's the difference. And, 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 you know, it's that, and it's, it's true. Speed is for the racetrack. It's not for the highway. Speed has no place on the highway. Uh, Highways aren't designed uh, for people to run fast on. I'm sorry. We run on racetracks where there's runoff areas, where there's softer barriers, where there's every safety precaution taken around that ribbon of asphalt. Um, on a highway, it's not that way, man. There's trees in the median, there's other cars, there's things, but the thing is, it is you get as a driver, you get so programmed to doing, to running whatever any, everybody else has run. You just want to run a little bit faster. I don't have to run 200 miles an hour. If everybody's running 55, I just need to run 58. You know what I mean? I just need to run a little bit faster. It's that kind. So even when you're going down the interstate and you talk about if everybody's running 70 or 75, yeah, I'll be running 80. I'll be weaving in and out, you know, but I'm not going to blast around them. And I, I think that's the one thing is you just do what everybody else does in a lot of ways. Hmm. That's interesting because uh, I've, I just, you know, I've just been in those moments where it's like, oh my gosh, we are walking here. I, I, I just don't, I can't imagine walking <laughs> off the track and having to go 45, leaving for yeah. 30 minutes. It just, it has to be brutal. Walk us through preparing for a race how well you can feel the car you know the car is going to run oh, yeah. fast what's what's that like so you know, you know I, it's it's funny because um i watch i watch i watch golf and and i watch golf on tv and i'll see a guy stand over a putt and it's it's a five foot putt and i'm thinking man what if you just disintegrated right there you know and just you know just dug into the <laughs> to the green you know but you realize they've done it so many times. It's just second nature. It's just uh, Davis love. The third told me one time we were talking golf and he said, I hit more golf balls by the time I was six years old than you're going to hit in a lifetime. And, and that tripped it for me because that made me think it's just second nature. It's muscle memory. And, th- and that's kind of the way it is uh, for a driver. It, it's just muscle memory. You've done it so many times. You've gone through the process of, of preparing during the week, of preparing physically, of preparing mentally and emotionally, of preparing 
when you get there of, of practice and working on your car and getting all that. The one thing that people that people would would find fascinating about driving a race car, I, I think, and I always and and I, I you you become so attuned to it is you drive a car with every part of your body, with every part of your body. You drive it, you know, you, you hear people say, well, he did that by the seat of his pants. You drive a car by the seat of your pants because you can feel the car. You feel the car shift. You feel it move. You feel it in your hands. You feel it in your feet on the accelerator and on the brake, you know, where, where things are. You feel it in the air inside the car when somebody comes up beside of you. Um, it's, it's like driving. If you can, anybody can do this. Roll the windows down on your car, drive down the interstate and run up behind a big 18 wheeler and then pass the car and see how the air pressure inside the car changes. That's the way it is on a racetrack. You know when somebody's up here beside of you because the air pressure inside a car changes. So you feel it on your face. You feel that on your face. You feel the air move away or to blow in or to blow out. There's so many things. So you become, in a lot of ways, one with what the car is. Uh, you do. It's like that old Caddyshack thing. No, 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 be the ball. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. You become the car. Um, and, and, and a lot of ways, and you can, that's why these guys are so good. And you get so attuned to, I got a flat right front. Mm. I got a flat left rear. Not, I got a flat tire. You know what I mean? Mm. I, I can tell you which tire it is. I can tell you because I feel it here or I mm. feel it back there. You know, I feel it somewhere. So, um, I think that's the, that's the thing. And, and it, it's, it's a muscle memory. It's a learned thing. You know, you just from doing it so long, but it is, it's fascinating. That's the part I miss. By not driving cars anymore, that's the part I miss. The feeling of the car. Yes. I, hearing you say that, I'm, I'm assuming that you would be mentally and almost physically exhausted just from being let, locked in at that level. You are, you are, you know, there's days, there are places that are more physical uh, and places that are more mental. Uh, Talladega is an incredibly mental race. Daytona is an incredibly mental race. You just got to be on top, not that physical. You know, you would think two and a half mile racetrack at 190, 200 miles an hour, 210 when we used to run it, you know, you would think, man, that's got to be physical. Really not. You go to Martinsville or Bristol where you run 90 miles an hour. It's incredibly physical and not a lot mental. You just get up on it, just bang, bang, bang. It's like playing rugby, um, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, but you are, you are physically and emotionally spent um, for a day or so. And you have to, you have to regroup, you know, there's plenty of times you see these guys, um, they'll run a race and they'll be lined up at the infield care center to get a bag or two of, of IV just to replenish their body fluids. Uh, so they do recover faster, uh, or take oxygen when the thing's over with just to get that carbon monoxide and all that out of your system as quick as you can so that you can recover, but it takes a day or two. That's why, that's why we run races every seven days. Uh, and not every two or three days because you just, a driver just can't do it. Being that you're so locked into the car, what happens when there's a wreck, not by you, but either way in front of you or way behind you, does it take you out of that moment? No, no. You know, I, I read a book one time, um, long, 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 many years ago. And, and I've heard it from other people too. Um, Chuck Yeager, um, was a test pilot. And they talked about a lot of test pilots and how that, that they lost a lot of test pilots, they, you know, as and that's what they were, man. You just send them up in the air and something and say, go test this out and see if it works. And it didn't always work, but the test pilot mentality was I'm going to fly this thing until it hits something. I'm going to fly this thing until, you know, and they're still talking on the radio. There's plenty of examples of test pilots trying to explain to the people listening what this plane's doing so that it helps the next pilot that gets in so that the next pilot doesn't have to, 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 to die this way so that they, they understand and they improve the product. Race car drivers are that way. Um, you, you drive until the car stops. You are driving, you are turning, you are stabbing and steering. Uh, you're on the gas, you're on the brake. Uh, and when something happens way up in front of you, you can't get, you, you can't get eye locked. Uh, and what I mean by that is if, if I see a car hit the wall, I can't watch that car hit the wall. I have to look at the total feel. You almost become, and I, and we've used this as, as, as our saying, you almost have to become Tom Brady and Peyton Manning 
and you see the defensive backs and you know where you're supposed to be. And that's the open guy. He's not there yet, but by God, he's going to be there when you get there. So you pick that open guy and that's where you point your car. Um, and you know what? Sometimes it's a complete pass and sometimes it's incomplete and they haul you in on a record. Uh, and that's, but you have to see an accident that way. And that, that is a, that's a crazy way to look at it, but that's the way a driver does. He goes from focused on the cars in front of him and racing to focus on a vast field of vision to say, okay, where's my escape route? How do I get out of this thing? Um, and you just keep driving until you are out of it or until you're so deep in it that there's nothing you can do. Are you getting updates on uh, drivers who have wrecked during the race? Oh, yeah. Okay. So how do you, how do you maintain that? They say, Hey, Bob's in a bad shape or if Bob's all good, or if it yeah. is bad, do they leave you alone? You just, you can just tune it out, huh? Yeah. Yeah. You tune that out, man. You, you don't, you know what? And, 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 and I, I'll, I'll give it to you like this is, is I don't know. Have you ever done anything? Have you ever done anything? And, and you're so focused on it. You're so focused on it. Oh yeah. Your kids come in and slap you in the back of the head or your wife tells you you're supposed to be two and two or three things or whatever. And, and, you, you get way on down the road and you don't even remember what they said to you. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't even remember what, what happened because you're so focused. And, and I tell people it's that way, you know, the, the, the one question you always get when you go and do question and answers is, well, what do you do when you have to go, go to the bathroom? You know, 500 miles, I have to pull over <laughs> two or three times. Yeah, you know what I mean? And, and the point is you don't do anything because your body shuts down. Yeah. You're so focused on what you're doing and what the job at hand is. You, you don't get hungry, your bodily functions shut down. You just go into a zone, into mm. a type of place um, where, where n- nothing matters and nothing, nothing comes up, nothing crosses your mind. You know, what you had for lunch, what you had yesterday, what you're supposed to do on Wednesday or Thursday, it, it doesn't. So I, I think that, again, that's where it's that mental trance and that mm. mental focus that, that wears you out uh, come Monday. You know, I think it's important for you to stress that because – in today's society, people are always looking, how do you do better, <clears throat> better at work? Well, one of the things that you have to do is focus. Yes. <laughs> you have to actually focus the elite like yourself. You're locked in. Now you may have to lock in for as long as a, as a NASCAR race, but you got to lock in. You can't just be distracted. And, and we've kind of lost that ability. Oh. We want to check Twitter or Facebook or this, that, another, except just locking in and trying to be the best that you can be for a period of time. That's really what the greats are doing. Yes, exactly. And that's what this has taken away from every, you know, every kid in America uh, in a lot of ways, because mm-hmm. it's, you know, I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking at my phone and they're like, well, what that guy post? what that guy say? What's, what's Twitter saying? What's his, you know, it's just, you can't focus because you're focused from, you know, one minute to five minutes and, and that's it. And then you look, and, and we keep hearing that all the time. You know, we, we hear it, you know, well, your races are too long. Well, a golf match is too long. Well, baseball is too long. You know, and, and every sport is looking at how do we condense our sport so that it's, it's consumable by, by, by kids now or by the people that we want to watch our sport. You know what? That's, I, and, I, and I always look at it the opposite way. Why should I change my sport? Because you have a short attention span. You need to get a lot of longer attention span. <laughs> you know what I mean? You need to... We, this worked so many times, and I'm not saying that it doesn't need to be adjusted. I'm not. I'm not, you know, going to be a 60 some year old old man who says we can't change the world. This is the way it is. We can change it, but we don't have to change everything just to fit the digital age and and what's going on, um, and 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 to keep people interested. You know, um, so I, I think it's a it's a crazy it's a crazy balance that that all sports uh, movies are. Movies are trying to reach. Everybody's trying to reach. You know, yeah, used to they'd come out with, uh, you know, you you go to the theater and if a movie wasn't two two hours long, you'd be mad because you didn't feel like you got your your You're fifteen dollar right. ticket worth. You know, <laughs> now you go to a movie and if it's longer than an hour and fifteen minutes, you're mad and it's called an epic. You know what I mean? <laughs> an hour and a half movie is called an epic now. You know what I mean? So oh, yeah. it is crazy how the shift ha- has come and come so quick. What is it that you wish the modern era, people like me, NASCAR fans, um, better understood about the golden era and the ones that came before them? 
you know what? I, I think it's like anything. Um, I, I think it's like anything. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm funny about things like this because obviously my granddad was a pioneer in this sport. My dad was such a, such a fixture in this sport is, you know, I don't think that I don't think no matter what you do, you know, I, I don't care whether you're in, in sports, I don't care whether it's business. Um, I obviously politically you, you need, you need to know some of the history. I'm not saying you need to know every bit of it. Okay. But you need to be based in the historical facts of what you're doing and, and what a thing is a sport or a business or, or this country is, or you're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. And that's just how simple it is. And I'm not, I didn't, I mean, that's a famous quote and a, a famous thing. So the, the point is, is that so many fans come into the sport now and they're like, oh man, this is a, where'd this sport come from? You know what I mean? Oh, it's too long. Oh, it's too, oh, it's too loud. Oh, it's too loud. Oh, they run too close together. Oh, it's not safe. Well, listen, let's just go back in time and let me educate you on how we got here. And you'll see how much safer it is, how much better it is, how much quieter it is, how, how it's changed in so many different ways. So don't come in midstream and try to try to change the direction of the boat. Um, but at the same time, just know a little bit know a little bit, know that the, the sport used to race on the beach at Daytona, know the people that, that invented the sport, the France family, know the greats from Dale Earnhardt Sr. to Jeff Gordon to, to Richard Pay. You don't have to know the guys that, that just ran on a regular basis, but I think it's like that in golf. I think it's like that. There's no Tiger Wood, okay, mm -hmm. with, without Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus, and there's no Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus without Bobby Jones. Uh, and, and Ben Hogan and guys like that. There's just not, I'm sorry. Everybody's success in any sport um, is built off the back of somebody else. Everybody's success in business is built off the back of somebody else. Somebody else, that's another layer of the foundation. Um, and then there's cornerstones to that foundation. And you need to find out who those cornerstones are uh, and whatever, whatever business you're in. I don't care um, uh, you know, if you're, you're Bill Gates, you need, he, he obviously knew who the cornerstones were when it came to, to moving, uh, the world forward with computers and moving the world forward that way. Um, because he did not step on them. He built on top of them. Um, and I think that's the way car manufacturers have been. That's the way almost all businesses are. What was your favorite track to race on? I tell people all the time, Daytona. Um, because I grew up, like I said, going to races everywhere. So Daytona, Daytona beach, Florida was the only place I knew that the, that the Atlantic ocean touched the United States. I didn't know the, I didn't know the United States had a shoreline except <laughs> at Daytona beach. So as a kid, that became my favorite place. And then when I got to drive, it was my favorite place for sure. What was the biggest difference you mentioned earlier that you thought you could whoop the old guys. You got whooped besides that. What was the biggest difference about dreaming about racing in the big races and racing in the big races? You know, well, in your dreams, you always win. Remember that. Always. <laughs> they always let you win. You've never lost dream. a dream. I'm with you. I've never <laughs> lost <laughs> <in> a dream. <laughs> never, never. So, um, I, you know, I, I, I don't think there was a big difference because I, I tell people this is from the time I was little. You know, I, I, I dreamed, I think your dreams changed on who you raced against, you know, because when I was little, I dreamed right. against racing against my dad right. and, and, and Pearson and Kale. And then I dreamed against racing against Earnhardt and, and Rusty and, and Mark. And then I dreamed against, and, and in my dream, it, it is, it's funny. And I tell this when I go talk to kids about driving race cars and stuff. Um, in my dream, all I'm doing is driving a race car. Mm. I'm, I am sitting in that seat. I am hanging on to that steering wheel. And I'm looking out that windshield or looking in that rearview mirror and I'm seeing who I'm racing. That, that's my dream. You know what I mean? My dream is not to have an airplane. It's not to live in a big house. It's not to do a, have a shoe deal or be on TV and do commercials. That's not the driver dream that I dreamed. I dreamed of driving a race car, you know? So I tell kids all the time, if you're doing this, just because you think it's going to be financially better for you, and you think you're going to get to a place, there's a kid out there that's dreaming like I dream that's going to kick your rear end six ways from Sunday. 
because he's focused on what he wants to be doing. He's doing it for the right reason. He's doing it because he wants to win. He wants to be the best driver, not the best spokesperson. He wants to be the best driver. Um, and, and so I, I think for me, I, you know, that, that was my dream was always just to, to hang on to a steering wheel. If you could put together a dream race with you and seven other drivers, who would it be? You know what? Honestly, um, and, and, and I say this, so that's, that's easy. So if I'm going to, three of them are going to be my granddad, my dad, and my son. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that we take up, that's half the spots right there. But, you know, as, as I look back mm-hmm. and I look back in the sport, I would have loved to have been, been there when, you know, a Red Byron mm-hmm. who started the sport um, and, and was our first champion, a Buck Baker, um, a Joe Weatherly you know, a Herb Thomas, um, a Rex White. There's so many guys. And then there's guys today, like, and, and I, I sit here and, and I look at William Byron and I look at guys like, I didn't get to race against those guys. You, you know what I mean? So I didn't get, I raced against Earnhardt. I don't want to race against him anymore. You know what I mean? I raced against some of these other guys. I don't want to race against them anymore. You know what I mean? But I think for me, it would be to take that cross section of a few of the, Outside my family, I would take two guys uh, from the from about 1948 or 49 until about 65, and I would take two guys from from today um, to be able to race against and just see uh, that cross section. But it would it would be tough to to narrow down two from the day and two from that that period though. What's your favorite story from the book? You know what? I don't I don't know. Um, you know, I think I think my favorite moments are are was recalling and and the the conversations that i had with adam about just being yourself um i I tell people uh and i and i'll tell you if 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 you had and i I said this a little bit earlier if, if you had my granddad and you could set him down and you ask him five questions and then he got up and walked off and my dad sat down in the same seat and you ask him the same five questions and then I sit down, you ask me those five questions. And then Adam sits down and, and you ask him those same five questions. So you've asked all four of us exactly the same five questions. You would look down at the answers we gave you and you would say, those guys don't even know each other. There's no way they're related. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's just no way because we were allowed, um, we were allowed to be different. So I think thinking back to Adam and trying to explain to him that it was okay for him to just be Adam. It was okay for him to be different. He didn't carry the weight and have to carry the weight of Lee Petty or Richard Petty or, or Kyle. He was never going to be us and we were never going to be him. He was going to be who he was. So I think recalling those were, were fond moments. My, my favorite story, and it, it's always been one of my favorite stories though, funny story. Um, there's a story in the book about checking in a hotel room um, in, in West Virginia I was riding my motorcycle. I ride motorcycles with the Kyle Petty charity ride, but I ride motorcycles all the time. And it was one night about 1130, quarter to 12, 12 o'clock. I stopped in, in a town in West Virginia and needed a hotel room. It was rainy. I had all my stuff on. I was all bundled up and had a thing around my neck and all. So I walk in, they've already pulled the glass down in front of the, uh, front, of the, the front desk. And I asked them if they had a room and the, the, the lady said one room. And I said, perfect. That's all I need. So I take out my wallet and my credit card and I slide it under the glass and she takes it and a few minutes she's, she starts to type stuff. And then she looks at my license and she starts tapping it on her finger like this. And she says, so you think you're Kyle Petty? And I said, <laughs> I said, well, I used to be, you know what I mean? Like that. Cause I, I didn't know where she was going with it. You know what I mean? So I said, so, well, I used to be. And she said, Kyle Petty has a ponytail. Mm. So I, I had all my, all my stuff. So I pulled my hair out of the back of it. You know what I mean? I said, well, I got a ponytail. And she said, I wouldn't call that a ponytail. And, <laughs> and I said, okay. You know? And, and she said, man, she said, my family is just, we're big race fans. Watch every Sunday with my dad. My brothers are big race fans. You know, they pull for, for Mark and Rusty. And she went through this whole deal. Mm. You know what I mean? The whole time that she's telling me all this, she's typing on her computer. 
she's just typing, you know, and she puts the card, the keys in the thing, you know, and she slides under the thing. She slides the keys, uh, the key and, and the credit card and my, my license back to me. And I go to grab them, you know, you go to, to mm-hmm. put your hand on it and pull, and she still got her hand on it and she won't turn them loose. And she looks at me and she says, can I give you a little advice? And I said, yes, ma'am, you can. She said, if you're going to go around, act, or if you're going to go around trying to get people to believe you're Kyle Petty, you need to look and act a little bit more like Kyle Petty. And I, said, <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> thank you very much. I said, I will take that into account. And I, I, I took Kyle Petty's credit card <laughs> and Kyle Petty's license <laughs> and I went into the room and went to sleep. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she just checked me in with all this fake ID fake according ideas. to her. You know what I mean? But she let me have she a room. Into, she conspired to commit like a felony. <laughs> I know. She let me have a room. And that's all I cared about at that oh, point. Oh, that's funny. That is still one of the greatest stories ever. She hadn't, I mean, we just, we had a whole conversation about racing and all this stuff. And she still, to this day, has no idea that, that I stopped in her hotel somewhere. Well, if you're listening, um, hotel worker lady, um, go out, <laughs> buy a copy of the book, and, uh, and, and read about yourself yeah. in this. So, yeah, you made the book. You made the book. Now, you mentioned that you left, <clears throat> you left off a bunch of stories. Give us your favorite story or a story that you left out of the book. Man. That's good. You know what? I, it's been so long since I wrote the book. I forgot all the stories that are in the book. Um, you know, I, I think there's, there's a, um, wow, man, that's tough. Um, there's a book and there's a story in the book about me and Sterling. I think the beer stories in the book, we hauled a bunch of beer out of Texas when I was 21. Uh, we just recreated Smokey and Abandoned. <laughs> um, and, and I was, I will say this, we had two cars in the back of a, uh, of, of a furniture truck and we stacked five or 600 cases of beer around it. Uh, Lone Star beer. It was when, um, um, urban cowboy was such a big, you know, and everybody had a mechanical bull. Every bar in America had yeah. a mechanical bull and sure. you could only get Lone Star in Texas. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you could get Lone Star in North Carolina, you know, we were, we were, you could buy a case of beer for, I don't know, 20, 30 bucks, 30, whatever it was but you could sell it in North Carolina for like 75 or 80 bucks. So I was going to make some money. Um, <laughs> and um, the back race car broke loose in the trailer and busted about 200 and some cases of beer. Um, and my dad didn't know we had all this beer in this trailer. And the next week or two couple of weeks later, when he drove the car, he said, man, my car smells like beer. He said, does your car smell like beer? I said, Why would your car smell like beer, man? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That's how we got busted on that one um we still made some money i will say that i know it's illegal as all get out but we still made some money because we we hustled some beer i don't know what stories um there's some there's some stories where we bent the rules a little bit in the car and and there um i don't know what would be my favorite i I don't know man that that that's tough to say maybe i'll you have to have me back when i have volume two Uh, and and i'll tell you what those are if you could have a dinner with granddad dad and son today yeah what would you tell them? You know what? I, I would say it, very simple that I, that I'm proud of every one of them and I love them. And, and that's all, that's all, because that's all you should. you know, I'm proud of my family. Um, and, and, you know, we've had our ups and downs and ins and outs, and we've all worked together and we've all learned from each other and, and that's it. And I think, you know, it would be, if I could sit down with my granddad and my dad and Adam, it would be a typical petty family Christmas or Thanksgiving um, or, or any time that we got together. It would be 100% talking about racing um, and what we were doing and where the sport was and how we could make it better or how we could run faster. Um, so it wouldn't be any, any different than any other conversation. It would just be a, um, a collage of all the, all the conversations we had had in the past, but I would I would give anything to have that conversation. In one line, how do you want to be remembered? As Kyle. Just as Kyle. That's it. And and I I've thought about that, you know, and and I think I think you get that question, people get that question a lot. Um, you know, and and this goes back to what we talked early when we first started. These are my stories. In, in this book, these are my stories. Um and, you know, you're going to, you're going to hang up today and, and we're going to, we're going to sign off here 
And this is, this is a, the only time that we've talked, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, and as far as I know, this is the first time <laughs> we, we, we've talked, you've read things about me and you've seen things about me and you may have seen me on TV, but this is the only time we talk. Mm-hmm. So who I am to you is going to be different than who I am to my cousins or who I am to, to the, my coworkers or the guys I've raced against. They know me, they, they'll know me different. So when you remember Kyle, you're going to remember this conversation. When they remember, they're going to remember that guy that wrecked them somewhere. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, so, but that's okay because that's how I'll be remembered to them. I'm not a saint. You know, I'm not, I'm not on a pedestal. I'm, I'm just a regular Joe who happened to drive a race car and got to do a podcast with you and got to ride around in circles for a living and, and got to run his mouth on TV. And uh, I hope my kids remember me um, as a great father uh, and someone who was a teacher um, and, and led them in the ways and, and helped them to be good Christian men. And I hope my wife remembers me as someone who was, was true and faithful and loving. And those are what mattered most to me is how they, they remember me. Okay. Um, well, let's remember Jenny and Morgan who helped set this up. I did talk yeah. to them. And so they helped set this up. So thank you to them. Sometimes the people in the back don't get the credit that they deserve. So let's give them a tip of the cap there. Yeah. We have um, to give that. We give them a round of applause. Listen, they, they, I could turn around and show you the whip marks on my back where they grab me, <laughs> but, but they are perfect, man. They are amazing. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about where people can buy the book. Um, where do you want us to send people to? Uh, and is there a second book coming or, or is you, you teasing that? No, no, no. You know what? There, there, there possibly could be there. Okay. And I'm not, I'm not going to put that out, but it, it'll be a while. You know, this one took a lot. I'll say this one took a lot more out of me emotionally uh, and than, than I thought it would, but you can get the book uh, at, at Barnes and Noble books, a million uh, Amazon. You can get anything in Amazon. If you, if you listen, I think in Amazon, you can get the book and get somebody to read it to you. You can get that. You can get get anything. It's on audible. You can, you know, you can get the audio version. Uh, you can go to my website, kylepetty.com, uh, find out where, where the book's available, where everything is, where I'm going to be signing things like that. So if you need to know anything about my life, uh, basically call Jenny, or Morgan, or go to kylepetty.com, and, and they'll tell you whatever you need. What I love is the picture on your website has you in the iconic Hot Wheels. Um, and, you know, for a kid growing up, that was that was a shrewd move, my friend, because all the kids love Hot Wheels. And so it's like, oh, the Hot Wheels race car driver. There we go. And so that, That's exactly right, man. You got it. That's your hook. You know what I mean? That's my <laughs> hook to get you to go deeper. Okay. Well, Kyle, thank you for this. It's been great. Um, And we'd love to get you on in the future if you have other books or something else going on. So thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate it.